I've never in my entire life woken up in the morning and thought to myself, darn, I got to go do therapy with people today. Never. It just seems amazing that we get to have these deep, intimate, hopefully helpful conversations with people. Um, they're about ourselves developing in different kinds of ways, you know, to lift others around with us. What a blessing to be able to do it. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Dr. Rick Hansen is my guest for today's episode. He's a psychologist and senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley and also New York Times bestselling author. His books include Neurodharma, which is his most recent, Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, and Buddha's Brain. It was an absolute pleasure to not only interview, but also pick Rick's brain in regards to how we might be able to do life better, particularly regarding how to deal with negative experiences and turn towards those things that we all really cherish and yearn in our heart, the experiences that are positive and meaningful in our lives. Rick has a real practical way of discussing this topic and things that we can do in our own personal lives to live better and let go of those things that are hard. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. I certainly did. So I'd just like to say enjoy and please give us a thumbs up and a review at the end of this if you enjoyed this episode. Rick, a big thank you for coming on to the show. Nash, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, kindred spirits, uh, I'm very fond of Australia, and so I'm glad. Thank you for having me. Look, it's really exciting to, to, to be talking to a fellow psychologist, a neuropsych. And I know that you've got a wealth of experience and have written quite a number of books. You know, most, most recent one, uh, you know, talking about neuro, neurodharma, the title, you know, looking at peak sort of experiences and, you know, yearnings of, of one's heart and how to go out and, and, and become closer, more connected with that. And also your other work in, in really resilience and, and which is grounded in neuroplasticity and, and how to go out and in actual fact use evidence-based uh, work to uh, embrace that, to enhance those experiences because we are surrounded these days by so much negativity. And I'm just excited to be speaking with you to find out more about those topics. Excellent. That's great. It's some of my favorite stuff, honestly. And I don't know about you. Um, so I've been a, I'm a longtime practicing therapist, although lately I've kind of been more focused on writing and doing online kind of teaching. It, you know, I've had jobs of different kinds where I was not that excited about going to work in the morning, you know. But I did it. I went to work. It was okay. I've never in my entire life woken up in the morning and thought to myself, darn, I got to go do therapy with people today. Never. It just seems amazing that we get to have these deep, intimate, hopefully helpful conversations with people. Um, they're about ourselves developing in different kinds of ways, you know, to lift others around with us. What a blessing to be able to do it. Absolutely. I, I always say, I, I can see, you know, seven to 10 clients. It, it's not an issue whatsoever. I, I actually feel... For, you know, extremely fulfilled, but uh, energized uh, yeah. 
I, I know that uh, others, you know, might find that a large load, but for me, the the admin work, you know, the paperwork is, is right. what really drains. Yeah, it just <laughs> the saps, insurance work saps my energy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But seeing clients and having you know deep, meaningful you know, conversations is 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 you know, really enthralling, energizing. Yeah, beautiful. How did you get into your 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 work? Uh, I know you've been meditating for a long time, and and uh, there, there there must be that crossover between obviously your professional life and, and and your personal journey as well. How did you um, you know marry up those two worlds? I think, like a lot of therapists, I was not very happy as a kid, and like a lot of people drawn to the helping professions, um, I wanted to understand and help myself and. Also, I wanted to help other people because I could see other people around me um, who were stressed, worried, frazzled, and blue. I was not traumatized as a kid, uh, and I think there are many people who've had a much worse childhood and, and life than I had. Uh, I'm not trying to equate them. That said, you know, I had a certain amount of suffering, so that set me on my way, and then I landed in college right in the middle of the human potential movement in the very early 1970s in America and California. I don't know what it was like in Australia then, but, um, you know, and that just kind of carried me along, and it seemed really cool and exciting. Initially, standard clinical psychology seemed very boring and behavioristic. No offense to rats and mazes, but it just was not as exciting as, you know, pounding on tables with towels, yelling out loud and doing all kinds of things. So that's kind of where I began. But all along, even though it took me a while to realize it, I had always loved having a conversation with someone that was helpful for them, that explored whatever was going on, maybe had some advice in it on my part, welcome or unwelcome, skillful or unskillful, but you know, a little bit of that, but mostly, mostly it was just unpacking, unwrapping, disentangling the knots of suffering and unhappiness. And, and, and I finally realized uh, as I approached my 30th birthday that that's really what I ought to do. So that then took me back into graduate school, initially in developmental psychology to really understand the roots of the psyche and then into a variety of clinical trainings, eventually getting my doctorate. Um, and kind of that's where I took off, you know, in professional terms. Along the way, it had also really seemed to me that the contemplatives around the world, the so-called Olympic athletes of mental training, had something to offer us. They had meditated, they had quieted the mind, they had peered deeply into it in a variety of traditions. And if they're all kind of pointing in the same direction, even in different ways and culturally influenced ways, sometimes religiously influenced ways, but if they're more or less pointing at the same moon, you start to think, whoa, that might be a pretty cool moon. <laughs> or at least head in that direction. So I did start meditating in 1974, and it was pretty sentimental and chaotic and, and not that fruitful, and, and I wandered around for a while. But after um, about 10 years passed or so, and I was edging into my 30s, I started practicing in a more formal Buddhist frame, especially drawing on the original teachings of the Buddha, which are highly psychological, not very religious, if religious at all, and very pragmatic, very practical, very immediate. And that's kind of where it all began for me. And then I would just, I guess, finish my story. In the last uh, 20 years, as neuroscience has exploded, especially the last 10, I've been really interested in the intersection then of these three strands, these three lineages or 
traditions of wisdom, modern psychology, uh, the perennial wisdom of the ages in terms of contemplative practice, and modern brain science. Uh, when you put those three together and think about the intersection of those three circles, there's just fantastically useful information and tools that regular people can use in the midst of everyday life and clinicians can certainly use to help people more effectively. I think uh, there's this really fascinating space that <clears throat> I hear from a lot of psychologists that, that, that I'm hearing in your story as well, this kind of movement towards this, the same moon, you know, as, as we read further and further and, you know, broader and broader, we recognize some similar traits in, in, in much of the, the uh, teachings out there or learnings out there that have been passed on. You know, I've sort of found that intersection for, for myself in, you know, the acceptance and commitment therapy world. Yeah. Um, oh, know, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 there's a huge intersection with, you know, I, I think uh, with, uh, you know, that some of those Buddhist philosophies as well. Um, and, you know, using, using evidence-based research to, to validate, you know, the processes or, or what is it that underpins change or, or growth or, you know, um, connecting with the, you know, who and what's important. So it's, it's interesting to hear your story. Yeah, and stress a couple. I'd like to stress a couple of points here. That first, um, what I'll call contemplative practice, primarily experiential, penetrating, motivated, disciplined, that grapples with the universal human body and the universal human mind, which then is conditioned and takes its form in ways that are culturally situated, certainly. But we've all got the fundamental human DNA that generates a human body with a human nervous system and brain, and uh, we share fundamental qualities of the same human mind. So a person can be very interested in contemplative wisdom without being necessarily allied with any particular tradition or uh, necessarily embedded in, in even a religious approach. In other words, one can, I think, reasonably extract insights from Sufism or Judaism or atheistic mindfulness and consider them on their merits and then apply them as one chooses or not. So that I would say that in general. I, I personally mm -hmm. uh, have the, my greatest training, I would say, in Buddhist contemplative practice. I've spoken with people in particular who are grounded in Christian practice and um, Sufi practice and Hindu practice, and, and to some extent, the practices of the first people around the world, the native people in Australia, the native people in the Americas, the, the indigenous first people around the world have it themselves a profound contemplative tradition that's full of wisdom. Um, so that would be kind of part one for me. And then part two, as um, a therapist, uh, if people walk in my door and expect clinical psychology for something, you know, their family issue, I've worked with kids, I've worked with couples and adults, a pretty broad practice, uh, they're not coming in the door to get a Buddhist lecture. It's <laughs> like, and if I were, so for, I think it's appropriate. There, there's some people who do Christian counseling and that's the frame and it's explicit, it's understood cool. and it's helpful, hopefully, inside that frame. So as someone who, you know, is somewhat identified 
with Buddha's brain. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the title in, in my most recent book, Neurodharma. Dharma, you know, is a term out of India, sure. not necessarily restricted to Buddhism, but still Eastern. Uh, I think it's, I just want to be really clear. I, I think it's very important to not preach at our clients unless they're there for that. And I, they're not, my clients are not there for that. That said, I, you know, um, the Buddha has no monopoly on the value of mindfulness or the importance of compassion or the value of recognizing that all experiences are changing, right? And you don't have to be a card-carrying, quote-unquote, Buddhist to be able to share those useful ideas with people and to help them develop those as personal qualities. Yeah, I love that uh, idea, and it's something that, that, that I think I've heard you know, in, in, in different forms. It's really what we're doing is uh, assisting people to contemplate their lives in from different perspectives uh, and whatever it is that, that, that that's going to be easiest to, to grapple with as a starting point um, and yeah. to broaden that in our, in our therapy. There's, I suppose a lot to be said these days around process-based therapy uh, as well. That, that, that obviously looks far beyond, you know, whether it's CBT or ACT or schema therapy um, kind of saying, if we just stop and pause, what are we doing? You know, and, and, and taking yeah. the time, to, to, to consider our lives you know, from different perspectives and why we've formed particular ideas or rules or thoughts, yeah. you know, uh, it, it, it still comes from that very same place of, you know, contemplating our, our lives. And what, what's drawn me to having you on, on the show is, is the way that you've spoken about that, you know, particularly in your resilience work uh, from your TED talk as mm-hmm. well of, of, I suppose in some sense trying to balance between you know, all the, if I can call it negative experiences that we're exposed to, to, to try and find something that's a little bit more longer lasting uh, around, whether it be happiness or satisfaction or strength, you know, in a, uh, in, in a growth, uh, whatever language we, we, we put to it, but something that's, you know, more, touching the, the, the yearnings of our heart, so to speak. Um, maybe I can pick your brain a little bit about, uh, yeah. about you know, some of the uh, uh, neurological processes that, 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 that you know, mm-hmm. need to be considered to, oh, for lack of a better word, but, 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 but to not, not even combat, but not, not, not to, to, to fight with the world as it is, but rather find a new world within ourselves. Well, that's really beautifully said. I think uh, gosh, there's so many different useful ways to go here, right? Um, and you're you are alluding to a few of my kind of uh, greatest hits as you were <laughs> and, and you know giving me the nod in different directions, so which I appreciate actually. Uh, I guess I would say that for me, Maybe I'll, I'll tell a personal story that would kind of ground it. Uh, when I was a teenager, about age 15, and I, I know roughly how old I was when this happened, I was very unhappy, and it all seemed hopeless. I was stuck. I didn't know how to change. I didn't know how to talk to kids. I was very shy, painfully self-conscious, socially awkward. A lot of residues of bottled up feelings. Uh, my I, my parents were loving and decent, but they weren't very empathic by their nature, including just their own background growing up in the, in hard conditions in the depression in America. And uh, 
I skipped a grade and I was very young going through school. So I was an outsider much of the time and lonely and all the rest. And it just seemed hopeless and terrible. And then what came to me was this realization that no matter how bad the past was or even how bad the present was, I could always learn a little every day. I could grow a little, I could let go a little, I could develop a little, I could acquire skills, I could cultivate a little bit every day. I could learn how to be a little less shy around big aggressive boys. I could learn how to be a little more comfortable around girls. I'm a cisgender, heterosexual guy. Um, I could learn how to not react so much to my parents, you know, and I could learn how to let go. Uh, of some of the sadness that I was carrying around, this big bucket of tears. And that was incredibly hopeful, that I could learn, and that it was within my power to learn a little every day, to develop a little every day. Incredibly hopeful. Uh, and so then if the great opportunity is to learn, in many ways, the skill of skills, the superpower of superpowers is learning itself because it's the one that grows the rest of them. So learning how to learn becomes the most important learning of all. And I mean learning in the broad sense, especially social, emotional, somatic, motivational, attitudinal, even spiritual kinds of learning more than book learning. And so then I've spent my career, I think in many, many ways, trying to understand the process really of lasting change for the better that kind of learning. What's the actual process, speaking of process, whereby people genuinely heal from trauma, they don't carry it around, they genuinely disengage from certain habits of reactivity, They're, they let go of certain addictive cravings, They and in particular, they acquire over time secure attachment, greater trait mindfulness, positive mood, happiness, gratitude, resilience, wisdom, love, how do they do that? And that then takes us into the process of neuroplastic change. That, in other words, we can consider this question uh, without reference to the brain, you know, as people 2,500 years ago did, or as Freud did. Freud was a neurologist. His first couple of books were actually in the nervous system, but he really functioned as a psychoanalyst with, without much knowledge of what's actually going on in the hardware. But today, increasingly, we can really understand in the hardware, how does the hardware change? How, how does change happen in, in the nervous system that underlies therapeutic growth, let's say? How does that actually happen, or personal growth in general? And we now understand that it's a two-step process, two-stage process, essentially. It m almost entirely involves uh, conscious processes of experiencing. We can grow through unconscious processes, but very minimally. It's mainly based on what do we experience in the moment. So we must first experience whatever we want to grow including experiencing a release, because that's what we want to grow. We want to grow traits of release. And then second, critically important, that uh, otherwise passing transient experience must leave lasting physical traces behind and in alterations of neural structure and function. Otherwise, momentarily pleasant, momentarily useful, but zero lasting value in terms of the, uh, any kind of internal acquisition of positive change for the better. And that second step 
of the necessary two-step process of learning is the one we routinely forget and one I forgot a million times as a therapist myself working with people. My clients will be having a useful thought or feeling or intention in my office, but by the time they hit the stairs uh, outside my door or their car in the parking lot, it had vanished, kapoof. Uh, or certainly by the next morning when they woke up and growled at their kid and kicked the dog, you know, or not literally, but maybe, um, you know, yet again. And so that's where I've developed a lot of material in Hardwiring Happiness and in my other books about self-directed neuroplasticity, to use the phrase from Jeffrey Schwartz of UCLA. How do we actually internally engage our experiences in such a way that they have the greatest lasting impact. So, for example, last night as I was going to bed, I kind of dropped into an experience of um, a kind of selfless love where I I wasn't caught up in my reactions to other people. I just felt really kind of flowing and radiating in all directions. I wanted to slow that down to let it really, really sink in. Um, uh, and in much the same way, as we go through our day, if we have a moment of feeling cared about by another person, or if we have a moment of feeling our worth, or a moment of recognizing how to be more skillful, let's say, with another person. I'll have interactions with my wife where I'm realizing, rut row, I need to go a different way here, or shift gears, or let go of something, or use a different word, or so forth. And I try to I try to learn from that so the next time it happens, it's more natural for me to operate in a different way. So how does that actually happen? How does that process of growth happen? And maybe to finish, I've uh, written a lot about it, you know, material about it, and it's really grounded in brain science, but there's a shocking lack of research on what people can do themselves to steepen their their personal growth curve of social-emotional learning. There's a lot of work in schools about learning to learn, children and students and young adults in college, older adults in college, um, learning how to acquire conceptual information, um, you know, semantic knowledge, so-called, more efficiently. Like, they can learn how to be better learners. But we don't do that in the world of mindfulness training, self-compassion training, compassion training, psychotherapy, coaching, counseling, da-da-da-da-da, human resources training. We spend almost no time whatsoever teaching the people in our various programs or our clients or patients, let's say. We spend almost no time whatsoever teaching them how to become active agents of their own personal growth curve in in general and also applied to the particular uh, situation in which we, you know, find ourselves with them. And I think that's an enormous missed opportunity. And the how of it is really simple, generally. Stay with the experience for a breath or longer, feel it in your body, and focus on what feels good about it, what's rewarding or meaningful about it. And there are other things as well that I go through in, in a lot of detail in my book, some ways that you can increase the conversion rate from state to trait, state to trait. That's what we're really talking about here. But the essence of it is really quite simple. You know, stay with it. Keep those neurons firing together so they wire together more. You know, feel it in your entire body so they're firing extensively in ways that are integrated with somatic processes. And, you know, be aware of what's useful or beneficial or enjoyable about the experience to really, really, really help it sink in. Any single time we do that is rarely life-changing, but the slow accumulation 
of increments of learning um, to make the difference between a growth curve in life that's essentially flat or one that's actually as steep as possible. Is that what you mean by learning, just to make sure I've, I've, I've understood? And thank you for letting me just do that whole little rant. No, 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 no. That, 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 that's why you're here, uh, so I can pick your brain. Uh, the, the, the learning component, it, yeah. it, does it mean uh, our capacity or our ability to have a new experience or new That's the easy part. Uh, a stick. Experiences are easy. Yeah, yeah. Is, is it about is the hard. stickiness? Um, you know, if it, if it's sticky, it stays with us beyond that moment. It 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 actually uh, integrates, so I can use it afterwards. So if I embrace it, you know, if I fully uh, immerse myself in it and potentially reflect or appreciate uh, it for what it is, it's likely to. And let's say I repeat that it's likely to stick with me and actually yeah. go to trait. So, you know, if I, if I stay in the state and I spend some time and energy uh, and, you know, embrace it for what it is, it's more likely to become, you know, trait uh, at, at a later. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Uh, people who are effective, and <clears throat> I'm sure you are effective, uh, first, the way I would put it, think about factors. What are the factors that increase the conversion from states to traits or to help experiences uh, literally uh, alter neural structure or function? Okay. There's a lot of research about um, external factors that tend to do that. In other words, how do you teach how do you teach rats faster where the cheese is or where the you know, cat urine smell is, right? How do you, how do, you do that? Uh, and uh, we understand a little bit that if people do certain kinds of activities, the behavioral factors of learning, so that we have the environmental factors of social emotional learning, then we have the behavioral factors, right? Uh, but those, not are, those are not yet mental experiential factors. And if we look to mental factors, the, we see two kinds of mental factors of social emotional learning. Uh, one is what I would call contextual factors, like the person's openness uh, or curiosity. These are contextual factors. And then we have what could be called engagement factors, what people actually do with the experiences they're having at the time. So uh, if we study people who are really effective therapists, uh, they might, let's say, create a relationship field, you know, the the, you know, that the people talk about is one of the major common factors. I'll call that a, con that's an, a, an environmental factor. And to some extent, inside the mind of a client, that feeling of being in the presence of unconditional positive regard, to use the Carl Rogers phrase. Rogers. Yeah. Uh, or, or to feel that there is a therapeutic alliance. That's a contextual factor. That's great. So let me just, let's, Let's play here. Let me give you an example. Sure. You're my therapist. I'm your client. I walk in the door, and um, you know, let's just say we have a good working alliance. I feel like I'm in the presence of unconditional positive regard. Check those boxes. Tick, tick, tick. And let's suppose also that I have some decent mindfulness. I'm aware of my own experiencing. Uh, and I uh, tell you that uh, my kind of 
therapeutic issue in general is that I feel inadequate, less than others a lot. I compare myself to others a lot. And I grew up in a fault-finding home and uh, I had lots of experiences of loneliness and exclusion, you know, as a kid, all of which are true. And so now I want I want your help, Doc, with how I can feel better about myself, have more of a genuine feeling of self-worth deep down inside and less sense of just, you know, being less than other people and kind of a bad person. So then I tell you, well, Doc, you know, when I'm with you, I feel like you genuinely care about me. I mean, I know you're my psychologist and I pay you money and it's okay and I'm not being creepy. I'm not going to stalk you, but I, I feel like you actually care about me. Right there, I'm having an experience. The song is playing in my inner iPod, right? I'm having a state that's very relevant to my clinical issue of not feeling uh, regarded, attuned to, you know, absence of healthy narcissistic supplies and so forth, I'm, right? So then what happens? And this is really interesting to me. Usually what happens, now I'm stepping out of the role play, usually what happens is the client starts to feel something they long for and either move on to something else or the therapist moves them on to something else or a defense arises, I'll call it a defense, inside the client, uh, a block to sustained experience mm. of what would be beneficial for them to experience long enough for it to have a prayer of converting into a change in the brain. All right? Yes. yes. That's what usually happens. That's what happened for me with many of my clients. That's what happened for me in my own therapy. That's what happens in different mm -hmm. ways with our kids, you know, the participants in our human resources, stress management trainings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, what if, I'll call it level one, level two. Level one, you say, wow, Rick, you know, tell me more about that experience. What are you feeling? And you would especially nudge me into a more of a kind of foregrounding or highlighting the, the richly somatic and emotional aspects, not just the conceptual aspects of, you know, the narrative I have about what I'm feeling, my experience, but actually feeling listened to, feeling cared about, feeling appreciated, feeling the compassion of another person. So you would ask, you would do little things to help me stay with the experience so that those neurons stay, keep firing together so they gradually start wiring together. You might even add a few things like, wow, Rick, um, what feels good about feeling seen by me? You know, highlighting certain things. Or you might say, what is personally relevant or meaningful to you, Rick, about feeling seen and appreciated and respected by me, Nesh, right? What feels what feels good about that? Because you would know that that would increase neuroplastic change mm. to highlight the reward value of the experience. Or you might say to me, you know, Rick, um, can you get a sense? Can you allow that experience to really sink in and spread inside you uh, so that, in effect, you kind of give over to it? You let it have you. You let, you, you let it become established in you. You could do those things. Those would guarantee and there's a lot of scattered but very suggestive and plausible research that says that this would increase the conversion in that particular episode of, of change. It would increase the change in that two-minute interaction we might have about that particular thing in that particular session. And then level two, you might 
say, hey, Rick, um, you know, I've been increasing the impact of this experience for you by doing things like highlighting or helping you highlight the somatic aspects of it and the reward value of it and its personal relevance for you. And, and, and I've highlighted the sense of really internalizing this way of being so it becomes more established in you and so any resistance to it resistance to this nonetheless longed for state of being you know is released you're really given over to it rick these are things you can do for yourself in the future you can in you can you can be um you can have more sense of an of agency yourself uh, you can be more of an active learner in a broad sense yourself in social emotional positive change by doing these things yourself you know which you would be teaching me how to learn now obviously it's not always appropriate for the therapist to move into that kind of teacher role right i was sure. trained psychodynamically initially so i have a feeling for therapeutic neutrality but often especially in more interactive modern forms of therapy um, it's perfectly appropriate for a little bit of psychoeducation, as it were, from the therapist so that the client knows increasingly how to be skillful inside their own mind to change their brain, to then change their mind for the better. It makes so much so much sense in terms of, I, I often talk about it in terms of with, with, with colleagues, you know, dragging clients through the mud, um, you know, keeping them in, in, you know, often those two spaces that I'm, I'm, I'm assuming uh, you would know because um, I don't know about it, but uh, I'm sure you would know from a neurological perspective, those two spaces of uh, love um, and, and fear uh, and, and to activate mm. either of those, you know, we, we, we know how, how profoundly um, important love is uh, and you, know, you touched on it in terms of someone appreciating another person or that positive wow positive unconditional regard uh, uh, unconditional positive regard but also on the on the flip side uh, when fear arises like you know in experiences where someone might have post you know traumatic experiences yeah. the, the it's it's you know quite often it's something that's occurred for a very short period of time often just seconds uh, but it's so intense and then someone mm. sits in that intensity of, you know, fear and confusion and, and terror uh, that that sticks. And, and, you know, I think we know that 20% of people in those situations that they, it, it sticks enough to follow them, um, you know, thereafter. And, and I'm hearing that you're suggesting that we can all participate in our own um, learning of uh, mm. stickiness of those traits by spending time, you know, uh, to a point where it's visceral. It, it's something that we can uh, notice in our limbic system where we've activated, you know, potentially even you know, teariness in our eyes because we, we, you know, might think about, uh, you know, our, our uh, mother's love, you know, toward us or, or someone who, who loves us deeply um, to be able to kind of connect and, and hopefully integrate that. Or we know by, by science is what you're saying. It, it will do that and um, we can therefore participate in our own lives in, in, in learning moving forward. Yeah, that's great. Um, and to be really clear, therapy works on average. And it has a very respectable average effect size. Uh, you know, well done studies 30 years ago, even more, on treatments 
particularly CBT, manualized kinds of treatments, because they're easier to study, but sure. other kinds of treatments, different treatments, let's say for classic issues, depression or anxiety, had a very robust average effect size of around what's called 0.6 as an effect size. It's essentially six-tenths of a standard deviation of change between the treatment group and the control group to simplify the statistics that might be making some mathematicians squirm a little as I do this. So that's very good. That's considered a moderate effect size rather than small. It's not super large, but it's significant. On the other hand, as you may, I don't know if you know, um, the average effect size of treatment today is no better than it was 30 or 40 years ago. So notwithstanding our capacity today to evoke or induce better, more powerful, more interesting experiences for clients, the actual rate of or degree of therapeutic change, response to treatment, is no better today than it was 30, 40 years ago. Now, some people will say, well, honestly, Rick, That's holding incredible. steady as the world deteriorates around us is good. But on the other hand, there are a lot of measures, uh, not so much in the last six months, but over the last, uh, you know, 30 years, and, you know, there are a lot of measures indicating that uh, much of the much of the world has actually gotten better. Uh, mm, a lot better. Developed mm. Parts of the world, you know, of different kinds of things. So notwithstanding political discord is particularly, let's say, in my country, America, uh, why aren't we getting a better response to treatment? And my own view is that in the two-stage process of learning, first stage being activation, second being installation, right, state to trait, we have not focused enough on the opportunity of improving installation. And that's where the great opportunity is, including by studying therapists, I'm sure, like yourself, who get effective results with people. How do they do it, right? And how can we teach clients increasingly to do it for themselves? I think, you know, that's that's full of opportunity. And one key aspect of this is to work backwards from what, if it were more present in the mind of a client, would really help. That's such a key, you know. Uh, what if it were more present? So I think about uh, what you said earlier about fear and the profound power of the mindfulness-oriented or acceptance-oriented therapies. You know, sometimes therapies, you know, is described in waves of so psychoanalysis, then we had behaviorism, sure. then, we, then we had the cognitive revolution, then lately we've had sort of the mindfulness revolution, as it were. Okay, great. It's profoundly powerful to just accept and let be. That's great. And yet, what are that's hard for many people. Mm. What are the inner resources that allow somebody to sit in the fear and disidentify from it, deconstruct it, have insight into its nature as an experience, and um, not get swept away by that storm? What are the inner strengths, the psychological resources, let's say, that enable a person to do that? And then how can we grow? So inner strengths like distress, tolerance, steadiness of mind, um, internalized felt sense of others who are caring, you know, self-compassion for oneself. These are all different things that enable us to bear our experience. And I did not invent any of them, right? Um, so once we are clear ourselves in our therapeutic formulations or just working with people in general, what would really help? You know, and and to know it for our own sake, like myself, what do you you know what are you working on these days? Like uh, there are a couple of things I'm trying to 
establish more or develop more as traits uh, in myself. Uh, my wife is glad about some of them <laughs> that I'm working on, <laughs> and uh, with good reason. And so, uh, you know, I think it's really helpful with our clients to have some clarity and for them to have some clarity. What specifically are we trying to develop? And then we move into the two-step process, experience what you want to grow, and then internalize it again and again and again. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, I, I, I uh, you know, supervise lots of uh, fellow, um, you know, colleagues and, and uh, staff uh, and, you know, uh, seeing new graduates as, as well develop their, their, their craft and their confidence. It's interesting even how much, you know, we as human beings, uh, although we play the role of therapist, we're still human. And, yeah. and on that basis, we, we also do tend to have our own avoidance mechanisms. And, and we know that this idea of you know, integrating by sitting in discomfort or sitting in, whether it be the love or the pain, uh, we're not extending that as, as, as much because there is even a fear in therapists themselves about, you know, mm. I, I find it uncomfortable watching a client upset and I don't want to hold them in that upset too, too, too long. Yet our training is saying we need to override our own personal stuff and saying, you're not going to harm anyone. This is called evidence-based practice. Uh, and the evidence tells us if we can do it in a safe space, uh, that's, you know, uh, comforting and, and kind, but not avoiding not avoiding certainly, you know, stepping into in actual fact, uh, it allows that, 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 that space to, I think you use the word grow, that you can kind of um, yeah. internalize that and, and grow it. Um, yeah, is that what the studies uh, are saying in terms of your, your research that if you stay in it longer, it, it, it somehow bonds in our brain or wires, I think you use the word wires. Yeah. Well, I think that I want to make it just so. Let let's suppose that someone used the example of fear. It's one thing to be with, and I'm going to use a kind of deliberately fuzzy, loaded term, negative. Okay, sure. It's normal. It's human. Sometimes it's adaptive, but we'll just call it a negative experience, or let's say fear. So, there's a world of difference between being with an experience, loss, sorrow, you know, anger, addiction. There's a world of difference between being with it and being it. What I mean by that is that if we're being with it mindfully, with we're not so identified with it, we're witnessing it, we're feeling it while being disidentified from it. We have it distinct from being swept away by it. We're not hijacked by it, and we're not, therefore, reinforcing it. On the other hand, if we are identified with an experience, hijacked by it, we are going to be reinforcing it. Mm. Uh, neurons that fire together wire together, especially, as you know, given the brain's negativity bias, which makes it like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. So simply just... Uh, bleh, being afraid yet again or angry yet again or, or feeling inadequate yet again uh, does not release us from that. 
does not ease us in our relationship to that. It just reinforces it. That's why it's so important to have, as you said, the strong alliance with, with the therapist, the comfort, the nurturance, the understanding of why I'm opening up to this very uncomfortable material. Um, you know, those factors then really enable us to be with it in a way that's productive. So, and I think that's an important distinction. So when we talk about simply being with it, with acceptance and so forth, we're talking about that in a, in a way that's skillful, uh, distinct from typical situations and people simply reinforce negative material by ruminating about it or just kind of being in it, being hijacked by it. Is that what you mean by that word uh, in, in sort of the, the learning space of being curious? Uh, if, right. If yeah. You are... So you think about factors and people like Stephen Hayes, you know, others um, have really developed and, and Freud talked about the observing ego, um, you know, freely hovering attention, you know, different, different people bring different approaches to it in a, in a more transpersonal psychology sense. There, there people talk about finding refuge or, or resting in the, the one who knows, you know, the witness, uh, the light of awareness, something, something, uh, while being aware of terrible sorrow or pain or trauma or loss, right? That's good. Um, and also, we need to cultivate and develop. Uh, we, we, and also, in addition to simply being with our experience, when, you know, People want to release it. They want to be less afraid. They want to be less mm. sad. They want to be less swept away by their addictive desires, right? They want to be less haunted by what happened to them last year or in their childhood. They, they want to release. So that part's very important too. To, um, now, sometimes it happens that simply being with difficult, painful material with acceptance itself leads to a full release it doesn't always, though, and that's why sure. I think therapeutic approaches, including cognitive approaches and behavioral approaches that are trying to uh, release problematic cognitions and behaviors, and then third, after letting be and letting go, we let in. We want to grow alternatives. Instead of fear, we want to develop a sense of confidence and sturdy, gritty strength let's say, instead of feelings of inadequacy, worthlessness, shame, we want to develop a healthy sense of worth and feeling valued and, and appreciated by others and uh, a sense of our own innate goodness, right? We want, so for me, all three are the territory of truly therapeutic work and personal development in general, letting be, letting go, and letting in. Now, some therapies or approaches are going to emphasize more or the other. I emphasize letting in the cultivation aspect of practice uh, because I think that's been the forgotten stepchild in a lot of quarters and, and it's really important and it's, and it's forward looking and it kind of suits my nature and so forth. But it's absolutely grounded mm. on being with the suffering. We have to start where the Buddha did with the first fundamental truth. There is suffering, right? Um, as well as letting go. Yeah. Right, what do you make of all that? Well, I was actually going to ask you if you don't, if you don't mind, uh, stepping outside of therapy. How yeah. do you personally go about uh, these practices, this this cultivation, oh, sure. you know, on a personal level? Many many of our listeners 
uh, you know, might not be involved in, in, in seeing, you know, a counsellor, therapist, um, uh, but are still on their, their own personal journey. How, how do you, um, to give us some, some you know, ideas ourselves that we might be able to integrate to, how do you do this in, in, in life? You know, what, what, what are oh, some yeah. of the, the, the personal things you do that, you know, whether it's, you know, letting be or letting go or that letting in, um, yeah. uh, what are some of those practices? Oh, yeah. Well, this little framework, which partly I love nature, it was one of my refuges as a kid, being outdoors in the orange groves around our home in Southern California, and then the hills around the orange groves, and then later in, in deep wilderness. Um, you know, I like the garden, or, I mean, I like our, you know, our, our yard, and um, I think about these three forms of skillfully engaging the mind. Uh, we can witness the garden, we can pull weeds, and we can plant flowers. Let be, let go, let in, right? And so um, as someone who started out in his 20s with a fix-it orientation to his own mind, I really had to learn mm. what I think you are very grounded in, which is the stance of acceptance and letting be and just mindful presence and bearing our suffering without jumping to a solution so fast. So I had to learn that. I've also known other people who are really good at meditating or really good at witnessing their stream of consciousness and that same neurotic flotsam and jetsam is flowing down the river today that was 20 years ago. You know, they haven't really cultivated, they haven't let in, they haven't particularly either let go or let in. So both are really important. But for me, letting be is the fundamental practice. It's where we start. It's often our last resort because that's all we can do is ride out the storm, you know, just not pour gasoline on the fire. So I try to feel what I feel, uh, really stay with it, be honest about it. Um, and then fairly soon, there's kind of a shift into letting go. And I find that if I if my letting go and letting in doesn't have traction, I need to go back to letting be. And I think that's true if we work with people or we have conversations with people. If we jump too quickly into solving, sometimes there's low-hanging fruit. And, the, you know, the material is familiar. Like, oh, okay, I know that inner script. I know that movie. I know that voice in my head. heard it a million times. <laughs> Moving on, you know. Uh, we move into letting go. But um, other times, you know, we just need to go back to it and stay with it. So I'll, I'll shift into letting go. And, and then a lot of my practice is to rest my mind on what draws my heart. And what I mean by that is um, I think in all of us is a knowing of the growing edge, right? What are we kind of loving into being, growing into being, trying to establish? If it's already uh, well-established in us, there's not a lot of growth value and focusing on it because we got it. You know what I mean? Like I, like learning how to lift a coffee cup. I got that. I got that one a while ago. I'm not going to get a lot of value trying to get better at lifting my coffee cup. On the other hand, you know, using chopsticks skillfully, I've got something to learn still about that. <laughs> so that's the growing edge. So there are things that I, that I focus on myself um, and try to help them become more established in myself. So I, I would... Yeah, I was just. I'm, I know you're asking for uh, kind of more experienced talk, and no, no, that's fine. Uh, I find, yeah, there's an intimacy where we we come into our we 
the kind of growing and learning I'm talking about is very embodied. It's very, you're in it. Uh, it's, you're intimate with your own experience. And there's a quality of humility in it in which you give yourself the gift of receiving what you long for so that actually you crave it less. <laughs> Paradoxically, by really reaching for it in hopefully skillful, way, skillful and not too annoying to others ways, you reach for it and then you let yourself have it. You stay with it and you help the animal body, oh, you know, kind of come home and feel it and receive it, then increasingly it's in you. Uh, you're, you're there. Uh, so that's how I am. And I mean, I could be more specific if you want, but that's, no, I would say, no, pretty, I think, pretty much how it is. I think much more, much more said there, uh, you know, using uh, that that appreciation, understanding of you know connecting with one's you know, heart and, and yeah. earning uh, than you know the processes. You know, the, I think it's a beautiful experience of you know gardening uh, of you know the, the different processes that are occurring, and, and you yeah. genuinely are out there embracing gardening versus I'm running out there to do all the weeding. Uh, uh -huh. with, you know, two different worlds, two different worlds. So that's, uh, I yeah. think, very beautifully, very beautifully said. Yeah. Rick, we, we have so much to, uh, you know, learn and talk about, but uh, obviously, unfortunately, we don't have all the time in the world. Yeah. How can people find out more about, about you? You know, where, where can they find out more about your books? I know that you do, you know, online courses, uh, that, that, you know, you do teachings as well and seminars. How, how do we find out more about, you know, Rick and where to find you? Oh, I appreciate that. I do. Um, so just my website, rickhanson.net, tons and tons of freely offered resources. And uh, if you'll indulge me, actually, um, I'll just name here some very, very practical things that people can do. Please. I'll, I'll do it in a real summary way. So uh, first, with regard to this time of uh, COVID, a plague, uh, sweeping the world, and, and also a time when, uh, certainly in America, I don't know about Australia, but um, we're grappling with a long overdue reckoning with racial injustice in our country. We're also grappling with a, with a long overdue reckoning with what actually happens when there's been 30 years of attack on the even basic notion of the common good, the common welfare, the commons altogether. You know, what do you do? So, when, when things are crazy, <laughs> when they're nutty, when, when the bottom is falling out beneath your feet, three things. First, find your footing. Find your footing. Where are you? What are the facts? What are your values? What's your plan? Find your footing. And then calm and center. Do whatever you need to do to, to calm down, to center, and be strong. And third, tend and befriend. That phrase from the work of Shelley Taylor at UCLA, take care of others and reach out to others. For me, those are three big headlines. Uh, find your footing, calm and center, and tend to me, friend. And then another list of three is really overarching. And in some ways, it relates to our whole discussion of the garden and the three great practices and, and how to balance being with and working with the mind. Um, I think deal with the bad, turn to the good, take in the good.
that way of looking at it, deal with the bad, turn to the good, and take in the good is not positive thinking. It's not rose-colored glasses. It means dealing with real issues outside you or inside you. And meanwhile, turn to the good. Recognize what is also true. Recognize those experiences, those states that would be beneficial if they were more active in your in your mind right now, more present in you, more, more rested in your heart, and take them in, help them land, help them sink in. And then the last thing I'll just offer um, very, very practically, I come back to it again and again. You know, if you ask me, what do I do? You know, slow down, take a breath, breathe, and notice when it's true that in the present, you're basically all right right now. It doesn't have to be perfect, and you may not be all right in the future. You may not have been basically all right in the past, but usually, when you slow down and don't let others hurry you along so much and don't let yourself put yourself under pressure, slow down and breathe. Feel your body, feel your body as a whole. And in the present, notice you're basically okay. The house is not burning down in the moment. Um, the shark is not chewing on your leg in the moment. There's no shocking loss in the moment. You can kind of settle and settle in. Okay. Thanks for indulging me there with my practical tips at the end here. No, thank you. I think that's a nice place to, I think, wrap up. And, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you know, Rick, Rick Hansen, please, please look him up, rickhansen.net. Plenty of information there to, 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 to find out more and, you know, continue on with your own personal journey. Thanks, Rick. Oh, thank you, Nesh. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.